0: Chapter 31, uh, this morning. Um, last week, of course, was Easter Sunday. Uh, it was we, along with uh, other Christians across the globe, celebrate the power of God over death. Right, uh, a power that the, the world and life of assist in reminding us of our need for if this was uh, if this was something you missed last week, um, you can find the recording online, as I know some of you already have. I would totally encourage you to check that out. As I said earlier, though, we are this morning transitioning back to the Book of Genesis, where we've been for um, 10 years now. And um, we've got like 10 more to go. So, I've got to go that long. Um, as I do though, I want to give us a course as to where we were before taking a short break to look at John chapter 20 last week. And by short, I mean really short, because I mean we're 31 chapters in, and I can easily eat up the rest of my morning revisiting what has taken place up in this point. And so, what have we observed crash course here it is. God has chosen one family to set apart as he multiplies and blesses them so that he might bless other families including you and I. He does this specifically, he does this ultimately through Jesus. Just to lay all of our cards on the table from the beginning, we love and look to Jesus as our King who rescues us. Who who rescues us from sin and its consequences through his death in our place and resurrection so that we could be brought to life. I believe with all that I am that God uses the proclamation and explanation of this good news to advance his kingdom. And that God uses the proclamation and explanation of the good news of the gospel to advance his kingdom here in Carrollton and throughout the world as the Spirit stirs hearts to believe. So what is my agenda today? Do I have one? Yeah, absolutely, I do. (laughs) I have an agenda, uh, and it is that we might all uh, leave here with with greater faith, confidence, and belief in our king who has substituted himself in our place. So that we might offer everything that we are to him. My agenda today is that we would look to and love Jesus. And we've seen already through Genesis 31 God's word to promote who He desires, as we are encouraged to look to Him. That's where we were two weeks ago before we we took a brief break last week to look at John of the resurrection. So let's say a few things about the world in order to understand where we are as we as we turn on to the on man begin of. This chapter here in Genesis. In a world that says that in order to get ahead, you have to cheat and steal, right? And you have to you have to backstab, you have to be willing to do anything and everything that it takes. Genesis thirty one teaches us that God makes people who they are. Right? And, he, and he blesses those who seek from his hand whatever he deems fit to extend. This morning we find ourselves engaging in text around the issue of idolatry. Which means that the possibility exists that 50% of the room immediately zoned out and perhaps are even planning their escape. As I speak even now. Because the reality is that the issue of idolatry is an issue that strikes at the heart of every person. Christian or not. Right? Idolatry is, is unique. And it's unique in the following ways. It's unique because while it's a, a pagan issue, it is not only a pagan issue. Idolatry is unique, right? Because while it is a, a poor issue, it is not limited to the poor. While it's an elitist issue, it is, not a li- it is not limited to the elitist. This is not an issue reserved for one ethnicity. This is not an issue that is reserved for one theological camp or another. This is not a, an issue limited to academia. So this is not an Old Testament issue only or a New Testament issue only. It's not a, a Jewish issue only or a Greek issue only. Instead, what we find as we come around this conversation of idolatry from Genesis chapter 31 is that this is a human race issue. If you are an identifying Christian, know this morning that, that you are not exempt. but That we are not exempt. Exempt Ed Stesser, and a contribution to Christianity today where the following. He says, does, does becoming a worshiper of the one true God mean we no longer have to contend with the issue of idolatry? Then I wish it were that simple. But everything that is not of God raises itself up against God, even in the life of the Christian. Would you catch that? Wait a second. Everything that is not of God raises itself up against God, even in the life of the Christian. So, consequently, we constantly have idle pop-ups in our lives. We have to, to cast them down, but we know that they will be there as long as we live here on earth. And this is what it looks like. Right? We're we're brought into and around this, this idea of idolatry as Stetzer assists us in, in beginning this conversation that's ultimately going to, to flow out of and from what we will observe in Genesis chapter 31. And idolatry is an issue for every human heart. No one is exempt. I think it's, it's become quite popular, right? Maybe even trendy to consider idolatry to be an issue that finds a home in a particular camp. What we find in reality, however, is that what John Calvin said is absolutely true, and that is that our hearts are in and of themselves factories of idolatry. So if you're here this morning, right, and you have a beating heart in your chest, the reality is that idolatry is an issue. You may or may not be willing to concede that point right now. But my prayer is that as we... As we seek to more clearly understand this issue from Genesis chapter 31, then it is the posture that we each come to. And in response, as we even now prepare to approach the Lord's table, that we would come with repentant hearts, having, having understood right, sin in right, this issue's presence that is so oftentimes prevalent within us. We're going to be in Genesis chapter thirty-one. I want to I want to set the stage a little bit in light of what we see in verses seventeen through twenty-one. We're going to spend the majority of our time in verses uh, twenty-two uh, through uh, somewhere right there towards like <laughs> the tail end of Genesis thirty-one. That was super obscure, wasn't it? I just keep guessing. All right, you go. You know. Genesis thirty-one, beginning in verses seventeen. And discussing what we see through verse 21. We see here Jacob and his family traveling back to Canaan. As we check in on the story. Deceitful the Uncle Laban is away shearing his shrinking flock. Which serves, as we will observe, to create the perfect opportunity for Jacob's departure. His exodus. Right, his, his flight as he sets sail towards his homeland. This all is, of course, most displeasing to Laban. Why? Because we've noticed on countless occasions Laban's concession that his prosperity is directly connected to Joseph's presence, to Jacob's presence. This leads us into verse 22. Of Genesis chapter 31 Jacob has departed As we transition here We find news arriving to Laban When it was told Laban on the third day That Jacob had fled He took his kinsmen with him And he pursued him For seven days And followed close after him Into the hill country of Gilead Verse 24 But God came to Laban the Armenian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful. Be careful not to, not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what's the conversation going to look like? What have you done? What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and, and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs with with tambourine and lyre? Verse twenty-eight. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? Mm -hmm. You have done foolish. Because it's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, "Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad." Now you have gone away because you. Longed greatly for your father's house But why did you steal my God's Now that last statement is, is Really important and we're going to talk about that In just a moment but one thing that I think would be Would be helpful is to um, Is to revisit some of the things that we have Just heard Laban say Over the past few chapters we have observed Multiple Notable examples of Laban's Failures And Laban's failure as a father, Laban's failure as an uncle, Laban's failure as the leader of his family. He has on more than one occasion taken advantage of Jacob by treating his daughters as as assets, pawns to be leveraged for his own personal gain. Fourteen years of labor squeezed out of Jacob. As he held his daughter Rachel out as payment. And when she finally did become Jacob's wife, she was sent away in like fashion as Leah with almost nothing. Even after 14 years of service, with Jacob seeking to secure for himself a flock that would benefit he and his family, his wives, Laban's daughters, and, and children... Laban displayed notable self centered behavior. Laban is not a tight guy. Right? Like to say it lightly. Laban has not acted cool in the slightest. He's left a lot to be desired in terms of his role within his family. We've talked over recent weeks of of the multiple instances in which we are left saying, like, Laban, you are a scoundrel. In verses 26 through 28, we see a series of statements from Laban that reek of insincerity. You know when you talk to some people, like, maybe you're familiar with this, right? Like, you, you talk and you can just smell the sense of insincerity, like, as you're engaged in the conversation, right? Maybe even at times, like, like your own insincerity, right? And in that, let's not limit this to other people, but, like, you engage in a conversation and you walk away and you go, wow, what just happened? Like, I wasn't even present. Like, I don't know what I said. Like, everything that just took place was totally insincere. The Laban's statements reap here of insincerity. What does he say? He says, Jacob, you you tricked me. Really? The irony here is that that Laban's accusing anyone of of trickery and deception. Jacob, you tricked me and you led my daughters away as though they were captives at the end of a sword. Take note, that is not the tone that we get from what's going on here. Remember what we saw in the first half of Genesis 31 was this explanation from Jacob to the daughters of Laban of his father's treachery and their willingness right, to go along with this, this journey back to Cain. Jacob, you tricked me. In fact, I wasn't even able to say goodbye. That's what that. Right? Okay. That's no what? You know, it's really more your loss than anything else. But right? I could have sent you away with, with gifts. We could have had a, a party. That was really that was really foolish. In fact, I would be totally within my right to take revenge against you in the form of bodily harm. This is the narrative that, that Laban is spinning here. You know what though? I'm an understanding guy. I'm an understanding guy. I can't do this. You were eager to return home. I did that. But one question I do have that Laban leaves us with in the last portion of verse 30. Tears that we find the heart of Laban's decision to pursue Jacob. The tears that we find the core issue. Behind Laban's pursuit of Jacob. It's here that we get to the heart of this conversation around timing and manner of Jacob's departure. Verse 30. Why did you steal my God? We find a scene that if we're in rhythm with the book of Genesis, ought to come as no surprise. What do we know about this family, and what do we know about this region? Well, allow me to take us back for just a moment. We already know that Abraham himself was rescued out of this same pagan society. And now, in spite of what Laban has observed, in spite of what he himself would conceive, that the God of Jacob is the source of his prosperity and blessing— It is made explicit for the first time that Laban is a worshiper of other gods. As we read through it, perhaps we would come to this conclusion on on our own, but at this point, it becomes most clear. So, what do we observe here in Genesis chapter 31? And we find God's word encouraging each of us to consider the why behind. Any of our actions and feelings as we understand now more clearly the why behind Laban's actions and feelings? Was it this feeling of, of unfinished business as it pertains to blessing and partying well with Jacob and his daughters as they ventured off towards Canaan? Is that the issue? No. <laughs> right? That's not the issue. Right, Laban is not upset that he was not able to bless his departing daughters and son-in-law more fully. How do we know that? Well, Because this dude has been stingy from the get-go. We can go all the way back to Eleazar's experience there. Laban has been has been stingy. He has been selfish. Self-centered. Self-seeking. A lot of self there at the center of everything that's going on with with Laban. So what is it? What is it that spurred Laban to pursue after his daughters and Jacob the way that he did? Well, it was the fact that his gods had been taken. His gods have been taken, and as we lean in, we understand more clearly why Laban pursues after Jacob and his daughters the way that he does. The encouragement for you and I is to consider the why behind any of our actions and any of our feelings. See, our tendency is to zone out, isn't it? Like, our tendency is to autopilot. Anybody autopilot this past week? I felt like I was a little bit on my autopilot, and maybe that's why this weekend has just seemed so chaotic. Or because it was just wild. It was just nuts. You're coming off a busy weekend at Easter and a lot of things going on. that you think you'd go into the week and you'd be like, yes, here we go, right? Yes. I don't know if that wasn't the case. I don't, know. I don't know what happened. This past week is a blur. Maybe it's similar. Our tendency is to, is to autopilot, to just go about our business and to never really stop and to consider the why behind our actions. Right, to consider the why behind our pursuit. Raise your hand if you're a college student. I want to talk to you guys for a minute. We are on a college campus, right? We kind of know this comes along with it here. I remember being a college student, right? And I remember not asking myself the why question nearly often enough. And all of us in here didn't raise our hands to say we're not college students, maybe we've been college students, or we've been just like busting it in the workforce since like 85, right? Like maybe that's you. We would say that, that not considering the why behind our, our actions and our emotions oftentimes produces a degree of chaos within our lives. We lose sight of things that are, that are most important. We lose sight of the things that ought to, to drive us and inspire us, compel us forward, that shape the way that our lives look and the decisions that we make and the way that we, the way that we function. We find here God's word encouraging each of us, regardless of what season we find ourselves in, to consider the why behind any of our actions and feelings. Does this conversation take place at all if Laban is not missing his idols? I don't think so. Again, there's a degree of speculation there, right? But I'm pretty sure that Laban would have been comfortable to just chill. Right? To, to hang out. It is a busy season after all, right? It's shearing season. It's shearing season. Does Laban pursue Jacob the way that he does, if not for his suspicions that he had taken these these tokens? It doesn't feel like he would. It feels at this point like none of this has anything to do with Jacob leaving without saying goodbye. It feels like none of this has anything to do with Laban's daughters leaving without him being able to send them off in a culturally acceptable and expected way. Instead, it feels like this has everything to do with an empty pedestal in some designated corner of Laban's home. You and I are active in our reading of this account. you You and I are brought into the story as we begin to see the birthplace of idolatry, not as this ancient Middle Eastern city, but as we mentioned in the beginning, the human heart. But the actions that we read of this morning are are simply the bloom of sin that starts here as we crave, want, joy and find satisfaction in anything that is valued more than God. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about idolatry. Perhaps you're hearing you go, "Man, I don't have any any carved wooden statues sitting in the corner of my house that I lay fruit before once a week." Maybe you do, in which case, like, yeah, I'm talking about that too. <laughs> but what we're talking about is we, as we define what the idolatrous heart looks like is this craving of, this wanting of, this enjoying of, and this satisfaction of anything above more than God. Here's a few examples of what this could look like. relationships in general. Let's get more specific. It could be a a husband or a wife. It could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. Are we we looking to and valuing and craving and enjoying this more than we look to value and enjoy God? It could be professional success. and It could be it could be sexual stimulation, it could be sexual identification, it could be a hobby, your expectations or aspirations for the future. Holler. It could be a political party. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a social agenda. Whatever it is, what we find in light of, of the entire canonical uh, this entire canonical work is that it is dangerous. Idolatry is dangerous. Whatever it is, it's dangerous. Paul in his letter to the Colossians helps us to understand why, as he writes in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He's writing to God's people, and he's, he's encouraging them to understand this distinction, right? That there, there are certain remnants of this old man that continue to dwell within, understand it, and separate, put to death what is earthly in you sexual immorality, security, passion, evil desire, and compasses, which is idolatry. Okay, well, that's helpful, but where is the danger element of what you're talking about here? How is idolatry dangerous? Well, he continues on, writing, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul could not be more clear. I want you to hear this wants to lean into this for a moment. Idolatry in any form is beyond an irritation to God. In fact, he will respond with wrath to its presence. And rightfully so. His very character demands this type of response Let's consider what we know about who God is Informed not by our opinions But informed by his word God is holy He's gracious God is kind and He is jealous These traits as, as we hear them don't seem to coexist well are actually not difficult to marry. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, Courtney and I were at a, uh, we were at a wedding, right? Wedding season, it's wedding season. Busier than shearing season. I'm convinced. We're at a wedding and um, man, I love going to weddings. Like I love participating in weddings. Like, I love officiating weddings, but it is cool to just go and chill at a wedding, right? Just to like hang and like watch and serve, like be encouraged. It's this beautiful display of Christ's love for his church is displayed. You guys are going to get that real soon, right? It's fun to go to a wedding. And as I was watching, I was thinking about, about this, this idea that we see presented in Genesis chapter 31. And we're going to continue to unpack this. We've really only asked the question. And we've got a lot of work to do still. But as I was watching this, this wedding ceremony, I was thinking about this issue of, of idolatry and how, how understanding the character and nature of God and, and how all of these things, his love and jealousy are able to coexist in a culture in which we would say jealousy and love typically don't coexist very well. In fact, those things seem to either be working in opposition to one another, right, or in conflict with one another. But as you think about a wedding, the after effects of a wedding, a husband being united to his bride and and vice versa, you really find this illustration that assists us in understanding how these things are able to coexist. Let me explain. If I was not jealous for Courtney's attention and affection, you would not describe me as a good husband. Right. If Courtney was not jealous for my attention and affection in a God-glorifying way, You would not describe her as a good wife. Why? Well, because, because God brought us together so that we might enjoy Him and that we might enjoy one another as we display His love for His people to the world. And right. if I developed a drug habit right, and began to give myself to it. And Courtney did not become jealous, right, if she didn't become confrontational around this particular issue, we would label her an enabler, among other things. Right? So when we think about, like, love and kindness, being able to coexist with, with the jealousy, right, you and I sometimes have a, have a little bit of a hard time pulling that off, and God doesn't. It's, it's perfect, and it's, and it's beautiful, and it assists you and I in greatly understanding His character, and the way that He works and, and functions, and what He desires from us, being what? Man, being our affection, right? being our, our worship, being our aspirations, being our mission, our lives. That's what God desires from us. And to withhold that... Man is an affront to God. It's, it's sinful. Maybe we don't do a great job at, at calling idolatry what it is. It's sin. Right? It's, an, it's an affront to God. It's an irritant to God. And it's ultimately an object of his wrath. This is what idolatry is. Our God is jealous that we would be satisfied. As we treasure Him, right, our God is is jealous for His glory and our ultimate good. You heard Dylan articulate it beautifully, right? That there's this inability for the things of the world created by human hands, right, or thought up within the human mind, to completely and fully satisfies What is it that satisfies us? That it's God. A God satisfies us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you are wrestling with this, this feeling of dissatisfaction, I'm not surprised. And <laughs> you shouldn't be here. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you find yourself in this season of dissatisfaction and there has been this Distance, as it pertains to you and, and the Lord, Man, you should not be surprised. Why? Well, because our satisfaction is found in the Lord. We were created to, to, to exist in relationship with Him, in intimacy with Him, in fellowship with Him, to treasure Him and to find our satisfaction ultimately in Him. In fact, we function best in this world as we function within that model. Right, in order to be a, a loving husband and a faithful wife, there needs to be this treasuring of God above and before everything else, including your spouse, right? If you if you exalt them to this position that is reserved for God alone to occupy, you are going to be frustrated. I keep going over here to Duncan, man. You've been married too, right? <laughs> I feel like I'm like, giving it to you right now. I don't know what like for you over the past couple of weeks, but this is a reminder for me as well. This is a reminder for you. You see, you know, I'm single. This is, this is zero applicable to you. You can answer anything here. Right? In fact, the Lord used in a really incredible way this realization within my own life a gift of compassion and kindness that I was exalting earthly relationships, seeking satisfaction in them in a way that they were incapable of ultimately meeting. That the Lord used this in my life to bring me into this realization that, man, that it is the Lord who is, who is reserved. That is the subject of all of our worship and adoration. And if there is any division, it's going to result in this natural degree of chaos within our lives. Have you feeling that this morning? Maybe? Right? Feel uneasy, feel like chaotic in your life. Explore idolatry. Consider idolatry. And its role in this, as you are not functioning as you ought to, that you are not functioning as you were created to. Let's continue on. We've got we've got more words to do. What's gonna happen? The story continues. Verse thirty-one. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. So the question is, hey, why'd you why'd you take my God's? Right? Why'd you take little G's? Little G gods, these tokens. Why'd you take those? I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have, that is yours, and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Man, this was a... quite quite an indictment. We're laying forth a quite serious punishment without knowing who is ultimately in possession of of these idols. That's important, verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he didn't find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel. Now, Rachel, verse 34, plot twist, had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban tells all about the tent, but he did not find them, verse 35. And she said to her father, let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way... A woman is upon me, so he searched but did not find the household gods. Rachel took these idols, and we don't know why, or we don't know why she, she took them. Perhaps it was out of some sense of nostalgia. And I'm leaving home, or this feeling as though she would not return, and so in an effort to, to take a little piece of home with her, idols that are likely connected to, to years of, of personal experience... Perhaps they were made of of some valuable material, thus she pocketed them in order to sell them for a profit. Perhaps she is, at this point, holding on to some form of superstitious paganism. All of these would act only as speculation. So what do we know? What is our attention to be drawn toward in light of what we read here? And what we do know is that through this, Moses, the original author, writing to the original audience, is warning the people of God about this type of While drawing out Its foolishness Remember what we said About about the original recipient Of this book This is a book that is recorded for God's people As they prepare to go in and take Possession of the land That God had promised them We've seen Hundreds of years of slavery Within a, a Paganistic and idolatrous Culture Years of wandering in the wilderness, constantly tripping over themselves into sin again and again and again and again. And now they prepare to come in and take possession of this land. And Moses is writing them, recording the events that we have read here this morning as an effort to warn them against reverting back to the previous sinful practice. He does so by by highlighting for us the foolishness of Rachel's death. He does so by highlighting for us the foolishness of Rachel's idolatry. And he does so while at the same time emphasizing God's providential and sovereign work to protect. Spoiler alert. Nobody gets slain here at the end of this the scene. Like nobody's, nobody's killed. Why? The offer is on the table. Right? He's got a recipe for a very tragic scene. But God protects. God keeps, got and God preserves. All. All for his glory. To opt for an idol that can be carried around in a saddle and sat upon over the God of Jacob. Foolishness. It's silly, isn't it? So, Oxford, an idol that is that is being connected here in this scene with uncleanliness, as it was understood in the Old Testament, over the God who makes all things new. Clearly holy and, and distinct. God says something in this scene about himself. While exposing the foolishness of Rachel's behavior, but not only Rachel's behavior, ours. I mean, think about it, what it looks like. Again, perhaps you're beginning to, or you're starting to, you're in the process of participating, right, in the identification of idolatry in your own life. How silly! How silly is it to to take these these things? And to give ourselves so fully to them, to be so affected by them. When we worship, as we articulated in the beginning, the God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this, this God who creates this perfect environment for human flourishing out of, out of kindness and grace. How foolish it is to give oneself. To a God that can be tucked away in a saddle. Doesn't that sound silly? Doesn't it? It's meant to. Good. You can laugh. It's meant to sound silly. This is insane. I mean, think about all the ways that, that Rachel right, would have observed the provision of the Lord over the course of the 20 years that Jacob found himself in prison under the bondage of Laban. Think about all that she would have witnessed. Think about all she would have observed. Think about all she would have heard. And now, tucking away these idols in the saddle as she rides back towards Canaan, it's silly. And it's supposed to be. Why? Because it exposes for us the foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry is silly. Right? It sounds funny to say it that way, doesn't it? It's more serious than that, but it is. It's silly. It's foolish. For whatever reason, these idols are found to be in the possession of Rachel. For whatever reason, this morning, perhaps you find yourself in possession of objects, thoughts, or aspirations that serve to steal your attention and adoration from God. Know this. This is the encouragement that that we are drawn into as we transition towards the table. Know this, that idols don't leave on their own. Right, idols don't, don't leave on their own. Right, in the power of the gospel, right, light of the hope of Christ, the glory of the resurrection, we tear them down to destroy them. We remove them from our lives and depart from them. We are in real need Of identifying idolatry in our lives and calling out against it. Knowing that as our love for God increases, our acceptance and and tolerance of idolatry will decrease. Did you get that? How How do we see a decrease brought in terms of our, our love and affection offered for things in the things of this world, Adol- idols, right? idolatry. And we, we, we know, right, we grow in a knowledge of our understanding of the love of God. And we understand that as that increases, our acceptance and tolerance of idolatry will naturally decrease. We are all brought under conviction. We all realize this morning that we have great need. And but let us see our great redeemer and the rescue that he brings to to me and hard hearts. So I was talking to Audrey Carter this morning, who I said sovereignly, providentially was reading uh, from one Thessalonians chapter one verses nine to ten. I've got your Instagram pulled up right here, Audrey. Wonderful slippers, awesome fire, cool mug. You guys had a lot of good things going on this morning over here at y'all's house. Audrey put this up this morning as I was, as I was reading. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How? Why? Well, man, Because God has softened our hearts. And he's, he's called us, this affectionate love, to himself. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from, get this, the coming wrath. Remember what we talked about what we saw from Paul in his letter to the Colossians? What does he say? That our idolatry becomes the subject, the object of God's wrath. We recognize that our, our hearts are idol factories, that we may not be carrying around tokens and saddles, but we've all got some issues that we need to work through. All right, we've all got some, some honesty and some identification that need to be taking place. All as we stand under the light of the gospel. I've got napkins, lots of napkins. Under the light of the gospel, right? That exposes sin within us. That exposes idolatry within us. What we find man, is that the gospel dispels this. Jesus rescues us from the wrath that we deserve as an idolatrous people. Our hearts are, are transformed. Right, to, to love him to, and to serve him, to look to him, right, to give ourselves entirely to him. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work that the gospel alone is capable of accomplishing. So if you sit, sit here this morning and you go, man, idolatry has me by the throat, things of the world have me by the throat. I feel like I can't breathe and I don't know how I am going to escape. no, this. You're right. right. Escape and rescue from the grips of this world and the idolatrous rhythms of our heart, our natural heart, are broken only by the hope of the gospel. As He, Christ Jesus, the begotten one, the only perfect, righteous Son of God, becomes. The subject of God's wrath to do our idolatry on the cross—it's mm-hmm. incredible. God doesn't sacrifice His holiness, doesn't sacrifice his, his justice, He doesn't sacrifice His jealousy, but it's perfectly displayed in the cross of Christ. And so, how do we respond? Here's what we do: very close, very close here. Come and say, When we cast ourselves upon the finished work of Jesus." And we stand in light of the gospel, we, we sit, right? we, we sit in light of the gospel and we, we ask the Lord to, by his grace and compassion and kindness, to expose sin and idolatry in our lives so that we might know and, and live in greater realization and comprehension of who he is and what he has done for us. Which changes everything else, which changes everything Consider these truths as we come to the table this morning. We take of the bread and we take of the cup. We are reminded of the broken body of Christ and His spilled blood for us. It's not difficult, but let's be about the work of slaying idols as we come up here this morning. Let me pray.